Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Coffee Law Firm. And on today's show, we might just have another groundbreaking first of its kind experienced. Three former regulators who have served at the highest echelons of the SEC in areas like examinations, enforcement, and investment management are coming on the show at the same time to talk about one thing. And what is that one thing? Well, it's literally the one topic every person in legal and compliance, okay, maybe that's a bit dramatic, but there's a lot of people in legal and compliance who want to talk about this one thing while probably simultaneously wishing so very hard that they didn't have to talk about this one thing. And what is it? Well, the new private fund rules, of course. I suppose text messaging and record keeping items probably would have been a really good second guess. Maybe that's an excellent idea for a future show. But no, for now, we will focus on what has been top of mind for so, so many legal and compliance folks ever since the final rules were dropped on August 23rd. And to help guide us through this fashionable and significant topic are the wonderful and talented Kristen Snyder, Dan Call, and Pete Driscoll. Given the gravitas of the subject matter and the guests, this show is being structured as another installment of our Lessons from the Frontline series. We've talked about these shows before, but for some of our new listeners, the Lessons from the Frontline series focus on real-life, tough-to-tackle subjects that other industry professionals and regulators have faced on the front lines of our industry. And if you're anything like me, you may still be in a state of shock and trauma after a preliminary review of the new rules. And while today's conversation may not give you all the answers you seek from the 656-page adopting release, our experience panel will be able to arm you with some of the key questions and items to consider that you should be focused on as you start to think about the overall impact to your firm and how to implement these changes in your firm's compliance program. Given the incredible insights this group of individuals can share, I know the best thing for me to to do at this point is to get up and out of the way. <laughs> and so, with that, let's dive into the interview with Kristen, Dan, and Pete. As we move into the interview section of today's show, we have an incredible lineup of guests to talk about one of the most uh, seminal rulemakings in the investment management industry. And I am incredibly pleased to be joined by three different SEC alumni and experts in a variety of different fields. We have first Kristen Snyder, we have Dan Call and Pete Driscoll. And I can't tell the three of you how excited I am to have you all on the show. I've really, really been looking forward to this. I know the private fund rules have been, uh, well, what, about uh, 18 months in the making here uh, from the original proposal. Uh, so it is so great uh, uh, for, to have you on today's show. And thank you all very, very much for taking the time to join us. If you would, I'm going to do a quick round robin. Would love for you to do a, a brief introduction of yourself, and then we'll uh, we'll get started. Kristen, uh, you drawn the short straw on my uh, on my lineup here on, on the call, but uh, please uh, feel free to uh, to introduce yourself to our, to all our listeners. Thanks so much, Patrick, and thanks for having me. It's so fun to be here, both with you and then uh, two of my favorite people from the SEC. So I'm Kristen Snyder. I'm currently a partner in the White Collar and Regulatory Defense Group at Debevoise and Plimpton, based in our San Francisco office. And prior to joining Debevoise about a year and a half ago, I served for 18 years at the SEC. And when I left, um, I had the pleasure of being the deputy director of the Division of Exams, where I got to work very, very closely with both Dan and Pete. So again, it's, it's great to be here. Thank you, Kristen. Mr. Call, over to you. Thank you, Patrick. Thrilled to be here. Uh, you know, longtime listener, big fan. So glad to be on the on the podcast to get my debut. And and I couldn't be happier to share it with uh, Pete and Kristen, who for the last several years, when I was working at the SEC, we spent a lot of time together talking about all things regulatory and a lot of things non-regulatory. So dear friends, and uh, glad to, to to have the opportunity to to work with them on uh, the outside of the SEC. I too left the SEC about a year and a half ago. I'm a partner at Kirkland Analysis. Fund 
fund group. I'm a, a regulatory partner in Washington, D.C., primarily looking at uh, focusing on illiquid fund regulatory issues. And prior to that, 20 one years at the SEC, 15 doing Advisors Act policy and investment management, and the last five years in the Division of Examinations, working with Pete and Kristen on the National Exam Program. And when I left, I was fortunate enough to be acting director of the division. Thank you very much, Dan, and super excited to have you on the show as well. Mr. Driscoll. Thanks again for, for including me. Had the pleasure to serve with, with Kristen and Dan and, 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 and very excited about today. I'm a partner in PwC's national office. I support the banking and capital markets as well as the asset wealth management practices at PwC. I previously was at the SEC like Kristen and Dan for close to 20 years and, and the last four and a half of which I was director of the division of exams, formerly known as OC. So Patrick, thanks again for including me. Absolutely. And and no, again, thank you all. It is so fantastic to have such a star-studded cast to talk about such a uh, an important you know piece of rulemaking that's going to impact so many different uh, advisors out there, obviously, uh, very specifically those that are managing private funds. And I, I think at the top of the conversation, I think it would be really helpful because obviously there is a lot to unpack with these final rules. We are going to do our best on today's show to cover a variety of different topics and really dig into some of the specific challenges that firms may be facing or thinking about as they've started to review uh, what the impact of these rules will be. But I think it'd be helpful at the top, maybe. And you know, Kristen, I'm gonna. I guess I'm gonna continue to pick on you. <laughs> maybe if you wouldn't mind, um, you know, could you kick us off and tell us w- what was the biggest surprise, right? Or what what are a couple of the biggest surprises that you really saw from the proposed rules to uh, the final rules? Thanks, Patrick. So there are a few things that I think the industry was hoping for and and came to fruition through perhaps the comment process, you know, in the final rules. But I think the devil is in the details with all of these. And so we'll unpack a few and and some may not be precisely as they first appear on their face. And so again, it's um, you know it's a six hundred and sixty page adopting release. so there's there's a lot there. Um, but in terms of surprises, there in the proposing release, there were several activities that apply to all investment advisors, whether registered or not, that would have prohibited certain activities. And in the final rulemaking, now those prohibited activities, which we'll talk more about later, are now restricted activities. So in some circumstances, advisors can continue to do the practices that are in that section of the rule. However, um, there needs to either be disclosure and in some cases, investor consent around those practices. So I think that's that's one of the bigger changes, and we'll unpack that a bit more. Um, another area in the proposed rule that received a ton of comment and I think was was really um, uh, an area of concern, regardless of advisor, private fund advisor type, was um, on the negotiated standard of liability that was in the proposed rule, which related to both indemnification and exculpation in the provisions and an advisor's uh, governing documents. And in the proposed rule, um, the advisor was prohibited from disclaiming or um, exculpating itself from even simple negligence, which was, I think, viewed in the industry as a real departure from current practice. And so that provision was actually removed from the final rulemaking. And now, um, however, I think, you know, hedge clauses and the SEC's focus on hedge clauses has been in effect for, uh, you know, a long time. The exam program put out a risk alert, you know, just a, a year or so ago, talking about how hedge clauses are a focus in their private fund exams. So I think that's an area where I don't know that the industry should take great comfort from the fact that that provision was removed from the final rule because I think hedge clauses are still you know, going to be focused upon both by exams and enforcement. And to the extent that you've got hedge clauses that in any way would disclaim federal fiduciary responsibility for your, you know, for your fund clients, you want to take a very hard and careful look at that and make sure that, that that's not the case. And that if there is a hedge clause in your agreement, that there's also, you know, what is sometimes referred to as a savings clause that would, you know, make, make it very clear that the federal fiduciary standard still applies. And there were some comments made, I think, during the, the open meeting when the rule was being adopted 
that called into question how far the SEC may actually push that standard. So even though that provision and that restricted activity, it doesn't fall in the restricted activity section, it may still be a focus. And, and I think we're still, there's still an open question about how far the SEC will go. And I think Dan may have some comments on that as well, given um, all the focus that you know we spent on hedge clauses when we were at the SEC. Yeah, I don't know if that's the segue. I'll, I'll jump in for a second on that section of the release, which is rather brief on, on where the staff pulled back on the exculpation. There's a lot unsaid in there and a, a lot of trepidation as to application in the future. The, the, the commission very clearly said it wasn't going to address state law uh, liability issues, but the, uh, to me, there are significant questions where the overlay of federal fiduciary standard and state law and what the staff's views may be with respect to limitations of liability and how they address that. Uh, you know, there was colloquy at the open meeting that this is no different than what the commission did several years ago in the fiduciary interpretation. Uh, but I think the, the devil will be in the details on application in the, in the years to come on, on the pullback on the exculpation and, and whether it was actually meaningful uh, or not. Yeah, and then there were kind of just two more things that I thought I would hit really quickly that are you know somewhat surprising that weren't included uh, in the final rules that were in the proposal. One is in the proposed rules there was a prohibition on private funds or portfolio or private funds charging portfolio companies for any unperformed services. So. Think, for example, of the cases that came out shortly after the uh, private or Dodd Frank, where there were accelerated evergreen monitoring fees that were charged. That was specifically kind of on the chopping block as part of the prohibitions in the proposed rule, and that entire provision was actually taken out of the final rule. But the SEC expressed in the adopting release that they believe that um, that that wasn't actually necessary because those practices um, are likely covered and are inconsistent with an advisor's fiduciary duty under Section 206 of the Advisors Act. So <clears throat> that's one provision. And then the other that, um, and then I'll, I'll kick it over to Dan as well, as there was a lot of concern in terms of, you know, because many of these agreements were negotiated years before, so would there have to be a complete repapering of all agreements within the industry? And so there was a lot of questioning about whether grandfathering or kind of legacy status would be applied to some of these terms that were in existing agreements. And so I will say, and again, the devil is going to be in the details. There are provisions that allow for legacy provisions to stand, but you really have to be careful in kind of unpacking exactly what is and isn't covered by those legacy provisions because it's not a blanket, you know, blanket status that's applied across the board. Yeah, no, that's, that's super helpful. And, and I do think you've, already touched on there, Kristen, what are going to be some common threads <laughs> throughout the rest of our conversation today and some of the real challenges that are going to, uh, that, that, you know, private fund advisors are going to have to, one, try to interpret the rule, but then ultimately to try to implement and, and be able to kind of operationalize based on their fund operations. Dan, I, I want to turn back to, to something that, that Kristen mentioned there at the end, though, on the legacy status piece and would, would love for you to weigh in and get your thoughts on, you know, I know there are certain conditions around achieving that legacy status. And I know that at least based on some of the commentary that came out immediately after the rule release, some folks think that it might have been a little too narrowly drawn. So would would, would welcome your thoughts on that and, and just kind of what what it says and, and how you see it kind of impacting the, the industry. Sure. Yeah, absolutely, Patrick. And and before I get into that, and I think, you know, that I think Kristen's right, that is one of the sort of both positive and negative takeaways of, of, of the rulemaking. Like as a reform policy maker at the SEC, or at least as part of the policy cog at the SEC, I think my biggest surprise uh, when I look at the adoption of the rules is is the, the, how far, and Kristen summarized a bunch of them, how far the commission actually pulled back from where they started. Uh, you know, I think this is probably, and may, I'm not sure if it's the sort of biggest rule set that's come out and finalized from, from this current commission. So I was sort of surprised to see how far they came back. And I think Kristen's right, you know, was that attributable to comments, attributable to the litigation risk? Uh, probably a combination of both. But I was pleasantly surprised uh, in how far they did, because I expected it to be pretty close to what was adopted. And we can 
argue whether, frankly, is pretty close to what was, sorry, what was proposed, uh, as Kirsten just talked about, some of the pullbacks are, may, may not be pullbacks. But I think I was sort of somewhat surprised. What, what, but what is also sort of an observation is they didn't pull back far enough. Right. As we know, the trade groups still have filed suit uh, in the Fifth Circuit, and we'll probably touch on that later. But I was, I guess I was, I was surprised at sort of at a thousand foot level that they did take at heart the litigation risk, the comments, and pulled back, I think, in, in, in significant ways. So happy to see that. But I guess, you know, pulling back is in the eye of the beholder, and we'll see what happens on, on the litigation. And even though they did pull back in significant ways, I think another observation is, you know, the focus on this institutional marketplace is in, in the investment management area is, is probably like the, the crown jewel in the near term of policy. As a result of these final rules, you, you look at the delta between like a retail SMA versus the restrictions that now apply in an institutional context, it's pretty big. You know, for instance, you know, there's no commission rule that requires for a retail SMA that there be an account statement. Now right. you have all these quarterly statements for LPs who are, are all institutional clients. You now have a number of restrictions and prohibitions that are probably 5x what apply in a retail space uh, today. And and so, you know, I think that's a, a at least an, observ an interesting observation. It's not a surprise based of course, because that was proposed, uh, but that's where we are. And uh, you know, that's as a as a reform policymaker, I, you know, I, I couldn't let that sort of go under the you know under the bridge uh, without mentioning it. But shifting out of legacy status, so you know, the, the the proposal was very broad and basically said that nothing would be grandfathered. I guess they didn't grandfather anything that they call legacy status. It's it's pretty narrow, and I think there are lots of open questions still that hopefully the staff might entertain in FAQs or otherwise. But legacy status essentially links to none of the disclosure obligations of the rule, but the operational consent, uh, things that would require changes to uh, agreements, LPAs, et, et cetera, investment management agreements. So those provisions that would require change, such as, as getting investor consent for certain actions, would, would get, they get essentially grandfather or get legacy status, provided the funds and operations of those agreements are in place, side letters and the like. So it's fairly narrow. But it is, a, I think, a significant give that the commission did from absolutely no grandfathering. And frankly, you know, like I think operationally, it, it would have been a, an incredible lift on top of all the incredible lifts that are already in the final rule set. And it makes you wonder, as a, as a sort of picking uh, sort of low-hanging fruit, that was probably an easy give. I think there are lots of questions still around the non-grandfathering, or sorry, non-legacy status of the disclosure provisions and how that actually gets operationalized, because the release did not spend a lot, a lot of time, I think, talking about that. And like I think particularly in the illiquid space is if you have a fund, you know, many of these funds have 10-year lives and they're not currently fundraising, you know, what are the disclosure obligations which aren't grandfathered? Moving forward, if you're not fundraising, because a lot of the disclosure obligations on 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 some of the the provisions are triggered off of fundraising and end of end of the fundraising period, and then an annual update thereafter for disclosures about uh, about new provisions or new agreements with with investors. And and you know, if you read the straight rule text, you can come to different conclusions whether a fund no longer in fundraising has disclosure obligations moving forward. And I, there isn't much in the release to to hang on and clarity around that. So I think there's lots of legacy slash grandfathering questions out there, but uh, the, there is there is some sort of relief provided for the, the most onerous sort of consent provisions that would have required amendments to LPAs and IMAs and side letters and the like. That, that's really, really, I think, thoughtful context around what is going to be ultimately one of the most challenging parts of, or I should say, certainly from the proposed rules, what was going to be one of the biggest challenges, uh, if that lift had been expected of the entire private fund industry. Now, they've given them a little bit of grace there, but obviously, as you articulate there, Dan, there's still a ton of open questions that folks are going to need to kind of interpret on their own. Pete, maybe if I could turn to you, and you know, I'd be interested, especially given your audit background. I imagine you know quarterly statements and uh, and working through some of the different kind of preparation of the information and actual content 
content that goes into a lot of those statements is certainly something that's in your bailiwick. But even before that, I, I too would love to hear maybe, you know, to, what were some of the kind of biggest surprises or positive or negative if Dan and Kristen haven't already talked about them that, that really stood out to you? And then I'd really love to dig in on the specific parts of the quarterly statements portion of the rule. Absolutely. I think Dan and Kristen covered a lot of the things that were relatively, well, were controversial as part of the proposal. I think in, in telling clients, is, is, is the thing that's been the surprise to me is I think 95% of the work stay final rule. And, you know, given the breadth of the rule, all the require I mean, that's five rules, um, frankly, and, 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 and giving the, you know, the, the breadth of what's included, the detail that needs to be captured, needs to be automated on a, on a quarterly basis. You know, you mentioned quarterly statements, and, and both you and Dan mentioned the operational lift. And, and that's what I'm hearing from clients is, is, is probably the biggest concern on how are we going to implement such a broad rule or series of rules, particularly all the little nuggets that are included in, in, in the quarterly statement rule. So for the quarterly statement rule, you know, there's requirements for a fund and expense table, a fee and expense table. And, you know, they don't have examples in, in the release. And so the question I'm getting is, well, what does it look like and, and how are we going to, you know, and so I think, I think a lot of my colleagues are looking at the public fund space and would it be similar to what's included in, 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 in the mutual fund space and being applying that to the, the private fund setting? You know, there's also, you know, a portfolio investment table. And again, like, you know, I'm happy that the commission didn't prescribe how it's done, um, because I think that gives firms with diverse funds and investments some flexibility. But I do think that there's a lot of questions around, like, how is that going to be implemented in a uniform way? You know, I, I think it's interesting. There's also a, a requirement for, for cross-references to certain calculations and cross-referencing and memorializing how those calculations are made to fund documents and LPA agreements and, 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 and you know, maybe ADV, depending on what it is. You know, so I think that that's an interesting exercise that firms are going to have to go through. Now, I think most firms already do that, you know, on the back end, but now it's going to be disclosed. And so I think that that's, that's a, a, another area. And then I think the one that, that most of my clients are talking about, particularly on the quarterly statements, is the performance information. You know, so particularly for illiquid securities, it's, you know, it's both IRR, gross and net, and MOIC, gross and net. And a lot of my clients don't do both. You know, may, they may do one, they may do others. You know, they got to go back for a period of up to 10 years. And that was one pullback that was, you know, from the proposal to the final is, is that it was in the proposal is since inception. But, you know, there, there's there's some of our clients that have funds that are 20 years old. And, and so, have you know the requirements for books and records are only five years, and so having that information to be able to to go back and recalculate, I think, was a concern for for, for some of them, that particularly in areas where they they didn't calculate the performance. But I think generally, you know, the gist of of what we're hearing is is just you know, fortunately, it's an eight, eighteen month period before they have to comply. You know, I think the 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 the, the things that they're thinking about is. You know, there's reporting out on these quarterly statements at a level of detail that they've never done. I mean, let's face it, most private funds do quarterly statements. They put them out to their LPs, but not to the degree of, of granularity um, that needs to be included in this final rule. And, and so, right. so that, so operationalizing that, thinking about trying to automate it. Um, you know, a lot of clients are starting to think about technology solutions to help them do this to rinse and repeat every quarter to get that information out to their to their to their LPs. And so so a lot in that I think the biggest surprise for me about the rule again was just all the work that's gonna be included in the final rule to implement successfully. Yeah. Dan and Kristen, any I know the one Pete, thank you for, for that. That was a fantastic summary of a lot of the key issues that people are going to find with regard to the quarterly statements part of the rulemaking. I'd be interested to hear Dan or Kristen, any any reaction to anything that, that Pete said or any other items on the quarterly statements part of the rule that you wanted to, to mention? 
Just a high level comment around the prescriptive nature of that section of the, the rule. And I agree with, with Dan and with Pete. I think that's, that's an area where we're hearing most concerns from clients just in terms of operationalizing and making sure that they're getting all of the, the categories correct and, and doing the, the reporting in the way that is required by the, the rule. But I think just with putting my former enforcement hat on uh, from the SEC, I think that this is an area that is going to be, you know, highly helpful um, to the enforcement staff because it is so prescriptive. And so you could definitely see, you know, enforcement really using this as an area to dig in um, when, you know, it'll take a little while because with the implementation period and then um, a lot of this may be covered in examinations in the first instance, but you could, you know, just looking down the road and, and watching what happened when private funds were registering with the SEC post Dodd Frank. I think with the, the new rule provisions coming into play, and especially with something as prescriptive as this portion of the rule uh, or the rulemaking, it's just an area where, you know, I think enforcement will be ticking and tying and where firms can really engage in a lot of footfalls if they're not careful. So um, I think, you know, there, I expect that firms are going to be asking a lot of questions as we go forward with this part. I agree with that wholeheartedly, Kristen. And I think one of the the parts of this that of the of the quarterly statements that's not sort of the front line of, of the requirement, but is part of the requirement that I think is the, the roadmap. And Pete mentioned where they have described methodology and tie it back to fund governing documents for all of the expenses. Like that is the roadmap. Should be the roadmap for sponsors as they think about allocating expenses. But this is what we spend lots of all, you know, our clients spend maybe the majority of amount of time on exams today is talking about allocation of expenses and tying it back to fund docs. And this is kind of the Cliff's Notes version of, of, of taking the work out of that process, at least for examiners and enforcement. And, uh, you know, I think we'll be particularly challenging, as, as Pete noted, with sort of older funds, you know, fund docs have improved over the years, you know, post Dodd-Frank and, and SEC oversight, I think you've seen significant improvement in disclosures. And, and we always have discussions is, you know, around improving disclosure can be a double-edged sword, right? Uh, once you put something explicit in a, in a fund doc, the fact that it wasn't explicit before, does that have any meaning? Uh, and that's that's always a challenge. The other point I, I would, and I think Pete has sort of mentioned this is this is an operational challenge, and service providers, you know, are going to be a big part of it. But there's very little guidance as to the level of detail that uh, the commission is going to expect. And without sort of the staff jumping into that fray, if they don't jump into that fray, it's going to be upon the industry, I think, to coalesce around details, level of detail of reporting. There was no de minimis. Uh, what actually has to get teased out per line items and the level of detail? And, you know, it would be beneficial, perhaps, if there could be additional guidance provided as people start building systems around this. But absent that, you know, hopefully the industry can come together and coalesce around some, some standardization because it's going to be a, a, a huge challenge moving forward operationally, I think. Yeah. No, thank you, Dan, for all of that additional detail. And I, I completely agree with you. I, I think anecdotally and speaking with a lot of the other private fund advisors and other folks that that we've started to really try to digest the rule and, and think, you know, what ultimately what, what's going to be the impact of the firm. And I think a lot of firms say that this is going to be one of, if not the biggest area, one of the biggest areas of, of impact because of the difficulty to try to operationalize it. And there are a number of different circumstances where even with the deadlines that, that have been imposed, right? For you know, direct funds, you've got 45 days for the first three quarters and 90 days for the fourth quarter for fund of funds and 75 days for the first three quarters and 120 days for the fourth quarter. You know, for, for some firms, uh, you know, they, they may already have similar type provisions in their you know fund governing documents that are targeting those timelines anyway. For other funds, and depending on the types of investments involved, and maybe they're really difficult to value or other stuff like that, like there, there could be some tight timelines there. And ultimately, then, as you mentioned, the service providers are going to bear a lot of the brunt of that. 
And as one might expect, there could be increased cost, right? If the service providers have to spend more time and energy and resources and manpower to right to be able to accomplish uh, those timelines, they're likely going to charge for it uh, as well. So, no, thank you all for for that. I think you know another huge area in addition to the quarterly statement part of the rules is is really looking at the what was as Kristen very nicely outlined at the top, what was the prohibited activities uh, section. And now the aptly named restricted activities, right? Which uh, provides hopefully some color for all of our listeners who maybe haven't read the hundred-page really adopting release of the new rules yet uh, about really what in summation kind of happened, right? There were a lot parts of the proposed rules that were uh, uh, described as prohibited activities, and there was an outright ban on them that ultimately uh, the SEC pulled back um, and has reframed more as restricted activities. And I think there, uh, depending on the type of activity in question, there's not only going to be both a disclosure element, which I'm sure uh, Kristen, Dan, and Pete will talk to us about, in addition to potentially, for some cases, a, a consent element of that. And I think you know, maybe one of the things that I would be kind of interested to, uh, again, um, uh, talk about, and we'll probably, I think because the restricted activities area is so broad, I don't just want to, uh, like, you know, ask, hey, well, tell us what was in the rule, and then, you know, go through uh, a, a long outline. Instead, we'll kind of pick out certain parts of it that, w- that we think are going to be maybe particularly challenging or and ask some kind of key questions there. And so, I guess, as it re- relates to um, the discussion of investment level fees and kind of pro rata and what that means, maybe, uh, uh, Dan, I'll, I'll pick on you here, since I picked on Pete last time for the quarterly statement stuff. You know, t- talk to me about kind of what, what the rule said there and maybe uh, some specific challenges that, that you see with the rulemaking. Yeah, absolutely, Patrick. So thank you. When you, when I think about the the restricted activities at, at a high level, it's kind of like a decision tree. There's a you know there's several areas the commission pointed out that are restricted activities, and they sort of fall within certain categories from this decision tree. From sort of you take one path, there's like multiple forks in the road. One path is you have to get upfront written majority consent from investors. Another path you have to get pre-activity notice and disclosure, and then another path is post-activity disclosure. So the one we're talking about here, investment level allocation of pro rata fees, is in the notice section, pre-activity notice. So it doesn't require written majority investor consent. You know, there will be post disclosure in the in the in the quarterly statements about fees, but the, the restricted activity is and I think this is perhaps one of the most challenging ones here, and I'm sure Kristen is going to have have you know firm views around well firm views views around sort of the enforcement and exam aspects of it. But essentially, what it says is if you're not going to charge fees on a non pro rata basis to clients to investors that are investing in the in the same investment, what what a sponsor has to do is they have to establish that the allocation, the non-pro rata allocation, is fair and equitable, and then distribute a notice to investors describing of, of why the approach is fair and equitable under the circumstances. That is going to be a, a challenge. What is fair and equitable? Well, I think in hindsight, you can have a different view, perhaps, of what's fair and equitable when you're in, in, in sort of the present-day assessment of fair and equitable. So. Actually, having to commit to writing the fair and equitable nature before you can do a non-pro rata expense, you know, you're gonna have records, you're gonna have disclosures. This is gonna be a very big challenge for non-pro rata expenses, and I think we're gonna have to work through collectively in industry a shift from what was effectively, I think, an approach around fiduciary, adding lots of disclosure upfront in PPMs and the like and uh, around allocation of expenses that may not be pro rata to get to much more specific and establishing what is a, a written justification of a fair and equitable non pro rata expense. You know, that is a sort of a new standard. Uh, so I think we're going to have to learn over time with exams and enforcement, presuming the, the rules stay in effect, as I said, the litigation issue that, you know, what is a fair, what the staff is going to expect fair 
fair and equitable to mean, level of detail. What they believe is fair and equitable is going to, I think, just work out over time. But you know, I think the first couple years of this is going to be a learning experience for all of us. <laughs> I would definitely think that comment is on point. And to bridge that and think about from an examinations standpoint, and Kristen, you actually mentioned it earlier in a different part, right, that some of the prescriptive parts of the rule are going to really allow examination and enforcement staff a hook to really uh, uh, find violative conduct. You know, I'd be interested to hear, especially because of maybe some of the challenges firms may have to provide substantiation for different parts of of that pro of the non pro rata allocation. If you think that that would also apply here, and, and any other thoughts you have on it. No, absolutely. I think I think it would definitely apply here, and I agree with Dan. I think there are, there are a lot of portions of this part of the rule that that enforcement and exams can really seize upon because fair and equitable. Again, as Dan said, with the benefit of hindsight, the firm's definition of what might be fair and equitable may conflict with what an examiner or an enforcement lawyer believes is fair and equitable. And so, you know, you're making decisions at the firm level, often in, you know in real time, and as things are happening on the ground. And the exam staff and enforcement staff can really come back and look at things, you know, with the benefit of hindsight. So maybe an investment that performed, you know, very, very well, maybe one fund got a slightly higher allocation versus another. But at the time that the you know, investments were made, it was unclear that the investment would perform in that particular way, or you could see it happening kind of on the other end. And the exam staff or enforcement staff really looking at that skeptically with hindsight. I think another thing that's kind of interesting, and again, I think the industry will likely coalesce around some definitions and meanings as this goes forward, is the SEC declined to define what pro rata meant in the adopting release. And so they actually go back and forth in a few paragraphs saying that some commenters asked for a definition, others did not want a definition. And so they expressly said that they recognize that there could be multiple methods to determine pro rata allocations and therefore declined to define pro rata. So again, you know, that maybe is a, a slightly less confusing point. I think, you know, th there will be some sort of standard ways to looking at pro rata that are maybe a little more definable than say fair and equitable. But again, that's just another hook where with the benefit of hindsight, somebody could come in and second guess uh, how pro rata was determined. So those are my yeah. thoughts. And, and again, lots of open questions. We'll see how it develops. No, they're, they're great thoughts. And I, I certainly appreciate you sharing them. I, I think again, like one of the common threads that, that I'm continuing to pick up is, you know, while there are certain parts of the rule that we, we've talked about that have kind of very prescriptive parts to them, within that, I think, and how the industry is going to view, like, for instance, with the definition of pro rata, right, that wasn't really given a specific definition, there's still a lot of interpretation out there. And so that's, you know, sometimes that's just enough interpretation to maybe find yourself on the wrong side of the fence when there's post hoc review in hindsight. 2020 during an examination or an enforcement inquiry of some kind. I guess, Kristen, if I could continue to kind of flush that out with you, though, I, another big part of the restricted activities section was this investigation fees and expenses uh, part of the rule. And so I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, from uh, kind of, you know, this one, I think, includes both disclosure and consent um, and, you know, how you potentially see some challenges or difficulties there and kind of any other uh, uh, questions, including, I mean, w will like the same legacy status kind of stuff apply for investigation fees in, in all scenarios? No, it's a great question. And, and I think, yes, this is where legacy really does sort of pop up. So under the under the, the, the new rule, investigation, so investigation fees for any kind of uh, regulatory investigation would be prohibited. You cannot charge those to the funds unless contractually you're allowed to do so and you you obtain written consent from fund investors related to charging those fees and expenses. And to the extent that fees and expenses for an investigation are charged through to the funds, if ultimately an action is brought under the Advisors Act or the rules promulgated thereunder, those fees and expenses cannot be charged through to the funds. And so there are a few things to unpack there. Um, and then one other point that I need to make is that there is a legacy provision. So if there are already 
provisions in an agreement that investors have agreed to in writing that predated the application of the rules, those can stand. Um, so fees and expenses for investigations could be charged through to the funds. However, the prohibition on charging those fees and expenses if there's ultimately an action brought under the Advisors Act and the rules promulgated they're under still applies. So there's sort of this limited legacy provision, you know, and I guess the you know the key key points there are is it clear um, you know that those fees and expenses are charged under the governing are able to be charged under the governing documents? Did that exist you know prior to the rule coming into play such that investors were able to consent in writing? If it didn't. You know, investors can consent now in writing, and a majority of which need to consent to that provision applying. And then regardless whether there was a provision in place before the rule came came into play or uh, after the rule came into play, but with consent from investors, if ultimately there is that finding under the Advisors Act um, or the rules underneath, you know, promulgated there under it, then, you know, the, those fees and expenses would... I suppose have to be refunded, you know, back to the fund yeah. if you're charging those through um, as they're being incurred. Right. So, yeah. No, that that that's good. That's a good summary, and and thank you uh, for for providing that detail. You know, it, uh, between the investigation fees and expenses, and then the discussion around the compliance fees and expenses, that was another area that I found kind of. Surprising, I guess I would say, because I, I you know, for a lot of the uh, rulemaking around the private funds, in, just in my own anecdotal experience, a lot of times those kind of compliance fees and expenses, different from say like the fund formation legal expenses and stuff like that, were often just born like it was a cost of doing business by the advisor. And so I did find it interesting that, you know, we called that out and there were some things that were included there that were kind of surprising. Dan, you know, when it comes to the compliance fees and expenses, you know, the, the final rules, final rules that came out, you know, was that what you had been kind of expecting too? And, and what, what are some of the things that are included there? Yeah, Patrick, I think that's a great observation. You know, I think most of the industry looked at a lot of the things the commission now as a, as a restricted activity as as just costs for the house right these are sort of the normal operational costs of of running a business and complying with the advisors act and the federal securities law but i guess i'm sure the you know there's usually the rules are sourced based upon sort of the worst actors and that's how you the lowest common denominator aspect of a lot of rulemaking at the sec or just generally rulemaking i think throughout uh, people that do rules so they probably seen some areas where sponsors or advisors are perhaps passing on costs that look to be more traditional house of the you know costs for the house and what the rule requires when I as I said when I think about their sort of decision trees this is a after you charge or allocate a fee to a fund a compliance fee then you have to disclose within 45 days after the end of the quarter so there's no sort of no majority investor approval no pre consent around this or sort of pre-disclosure around this it's post-activity disclosure but it's very you know there are traditional things like you you, you know consultant reports that are doing tests around your compliance program that type of thing is is would be clearly included you know your ADV filing costs perhaps but the actual rule is is very broad and it, it restricts an advisor sponsor for charging a fund for any regulatory compliance or examination fee of the advisor or its related persons. So could be, you know, it's not just the Advisors Act. Uh, it's not just even, I think, the federal securities laws. It's any regulatory compliance or examination fee. So the breadth, depending upon what you're doing as a, as a sponsor, you know, what your affiliates, if you have affiliated service providers and their related persons that could get captured by this, I think it, it take, I think is a on its face, you think, you know, more traditional Advisors Act compliance, ADV, Form PF, whatever it might be. But I think you take, have to take a step back and do a, a bigger inventory of what might be captured by this. And then the other thing that's unique is the, if you read the, the language in the release suggests a level of detail that's pretty granular. Uh, it talks very specifically about not grouping expenses together. And I think how that plays out and what we see sort of where industry coalesces to the extent people are doing this, how granular these disclosures are, the post uh, uh, charging or allocating these fees will be interesting development. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, thank you for <laughs> providing some of that additional context too, because I do think it does match, especially what, what kind of I had been hearing from as reactions uh, to those specific parts of the rule. One of the things, oh yeah, uh, Pete, I, did you have anything you wanted to add to there? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Dan, like, like you touched on a really good point that like we had, you know, discussed with staff, you know, in the proposal having to do with regulatory and what that means, as well as governmental and regulatory authority on those two, you know, restricted activities. Because you think about taxes, like the IRS is a, is a, is a federal agency and they do investigative work. They can audit a fund tax return. And what sort of, you know, expenses related to that can be charged to the fund versus borne by the advisor? And I think that, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily, you know, it, it's definitely outside the SEC world and, and what the rule writers were probably thinking about. But definitely, you know, I think that that's a, a real impact to this in terms of, you know, it, it, if there is an IRS audit or if there is other governmental body. And, you know, I think that that's going to be, you know, something that I think is an inadvertent requirement that I don't, I, I doubt that the, the, the SEC was very focused on just given the breadth of the language here. Yeah, no, that that's a great, a great comment, Pete. Actually, I'm, I'm going to stick with you for a second because another one of the things that I wanted to talk about under, under this section was the, the GP clawback items. And I'd be interested to hear, hear your thoughts on, on how uh, you thought the final rules on that specific part, you know, how, how they kind of came out. Yeah, actually, I, I think that, you know, not to speak for our firm, but, you know, I think generally we were happy that it moved from a prohibition to a disclosure. And, and, and here's why. I mean, this, this is, a, is a pretty common practice in the private fund space a lot of the uh, permissibility of doing an after-tax clawback is built into the fund documents. It's built into the ADV disclosures, and and it's been around for a while. The challenge with and, and what this is is this is when you know say there's a performance-based fee that's paid early on in the fund, um, based on some 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 winners in terms of portfolios or investments, and then a couple of years later, you know the, the, some losses mount and they have to claw back some of that advisor compensation, the performance-based compensation. One of the challenges I think with that is you're getting into going back multiple years. So that's going to create, do you amend the return? Do you have to somehow absorb that difference? Um, but also there, there's some requirements in the tax code that have mandatory distributions by the private funds for certain purposes. And this was an area that, that, that we highlighted for the SEC in our, in our comment letter. Because it, it, it's not necessarily just performance-based fees. It, it can be other requirements just that are generated by regulation. And so I think the view is, is now the requirements disclose the gross and net, but you can still pay the net, the after-tax. And I, and I think that, that that is the right solution you know, from that proposed rule to the final. Yeah. I think, and especially because I'm, I just think that the conversation we're having is fantastic. And I know that, look, there's so much that we could continue to unpack on on the the different parts of this section of the rules under restricted activities. I'd like to warp speed ahead to talking about another huge area uh, in the release, which was the preferential treatment stuff. And and I think we have asked a lot of really great questions on today's uh, show. I don't know how many great answers we've given yet, but that's because maybe there aren't a lot of great answers to be had just just yet. Now, again, that might get flushed out over time. Again, uh, hopefully we continue to have really good conversations with the staff and we have additional FAQs and stuff that can come out. But let, let's go to the preferential treatment stuff because I think there's redemption rights, there's portfolio information, and then there's kind of other preferential treatment and some different questions in there. So maybe, uh, Dan, I'll start I'll start with you. You know, what, what did you think of that section of the rule and, and just kind of uh, what does it say and some of your general reactions there? Yeah, much like I, I take in a, when I read this, I took an approach like I, I did the restricted activities is there's a couple forks in the road uh, based up, and, and depending upon where you're headed on what provision, 
that fork will take you to a different place on how you deal with it. So there's a, the first fork in the road is there are two specific preferential treatment rules that the commission carved out that essentially said that you have to offer that preferential treatment to all investors regardless. So query whether it's still preferential treatment if you're offering it to all, but uh, that that's sort of in the weeds. And then there's, you get down outside of those two rules, the rest of the preferential treatment it's disclosure obligations. And again, there's another fork based upon the type of preferential treatment, whether it's uh, post sort of investment, post close disclosure or pre investment disclosure. So sort of, again, the same sort of forks upon forks in the road, depending upon the activity. So at, at a high level, right. And, and I think this is very consistent with the proposal, although they have now, you know, the preferential treatment is now not prohibited. You just have to offer it to all, but around redemption rights, clearly the commission is, is very much attuned to offering favorable investment rights and essentially, you know, not prohibited, but said you have to offer it to all investors. They did provide sort of the low-hanging fruit carve-out if it's attributable uh, preferential treatment due to law. That can be an exception, but that's essentially the only exception. So all investors have to be offered the same uh, redemption rights. And then all investors also have to be offered the same information rights or portfolio transparency. There was some helpful color in the release around portfolio transparency. The commission viewed it largely as a liquid fund issue. They didn't provide a safe harbor around around uh, portfolio transparency for illiquid funds, but there's language in the release that suggests, you know, if there's if if you're in an illiquid investment, is it really preferential getting access to information different than others because you're stuck in the investment regardless? So those are the the, the two provisions that stuck that you have to offer to all investors. And then you get into the disclosure around other types of preferential treatment. And this is sort of, I think, one of the, again, one of the, the, the big lifts or big changes. And the first one is pre-investment, pre-closed disclosure around material economic terms, preferential treatment around material economic terms. So this is the side letter provisions that all of our, our, our clients have uh, numerous ones of. And uh, there are going to be uh, just sort of, I think, not just operational challenges around pre-investment disclosure for preferential treatment rights, but I think very serious and significant discussions around what types of uh, material economic preferential terms will be provided moving forward. And I think a lot of those discussions will be taking place over the next sort of year before the compliance date or hopefully well before that. But I think that's sort of a, you know, the rule is the rule, but how it waterfalls into practice is going to be very interesting over the next eight months. Um, and then there's the, 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 there is disclosure for non-material economic preferential treatement, uh, which has to basically come a month after uh, close. And then there's an annual updating requirement, if, if that wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and you touched on something kind of near the end of that summary, which was fantastic. Thank you for that. That, that I think is really important. And I, I'd love to flesh out a little further. And, and maybe, Pete, I'll, I'll pick on you here a little bit, which is you talked about some of the challenges that may be involved in kind of operationalizing that and, and what that's going to look like. And I do think that is such a critical piece here that at least again based on some of the initial reactions from folks after the rules came out is is a question that a lot of folks are asking so pete i know this is something that certainly you um have heard and felt from clients and would be interested to hear your thoughts about how can firms start to implement and operationalize some of these different items, both you know that, that have these elements of disclosure and that have these elements of consent and and then reporting, right, and everything in between? Yeah, it's going to be a difficult process just because of the obtaining and, and, and quantifying the universe. I mean, you know, take side letters. I mean, most firms have a pretty good handle on their side letters and have an inventory of that, but then moving from the side letter piece to ensuring that there's nothing inappropriate or contrary to this specific rule is a different story because it's one thing to capture the side letters, make sure that the fund is living by the side letters and the advisors living by the side. But it's another thing to, to assess the side letter and then assess those conversations that are being had with clients and with, 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 with LPs to ensure that there's not an overstep. I mean, one of the things that I think was was talked about by uh, Commissioner Ueda in, in, the, in the meeting 
was that the fact that this may end up being like a reg FD type of disclosure regime and the significance of that and 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 what they'll you know potentially like as he described is is that the information flow actually shut down more in a reg FD situation because they were afraid to talk to investors because one conversation may 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 be you know problematic that they'll have to go to the world and do an 8k i think that that's a concern but more globally too i i, I think that that cap, the the hardest i mean it's capturing retaining and then you know systemizing the approach to gathering the information i i think it's just going to be a huge left for firms and 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 you know there there are a number of clients that that are relatively manual in terms of approach when it comes to quarterly statements and fees and things like that but i think that you know this is really going to drive a lot more costs in terms of technology and systems based solutions just because the accuracy and the attention, you know, to Kristen's point, I mean, there's going to be a lot of footfalls by firms in their quarterly statements, and those are going to be reviewed very closely because of everything that's included in them, mm-hmm. and the substantiation requirements are, are going to need to be there and back to part. So, I, I I do think it. I think enforcement and exams is going to be very focused on ensuring that the information that's going quarterly to, to, to investors is accurate. And so I, th- I think it definitely raises a level, you know, in terms of the need for really good governance and, and, and hygiene on this one. Yeah. And, you know, I, we, I feel like we could actually, I mean, we, we could have blocked out like a three hour set to do this entire stuff. And we still wouldn't have had enough time to get through all of the different uh, parts of the different rule, I guess, you know, cause we haven't even touched on some of the other stuff. Like you've still got the annual audit requirement, right? That's going to be uh, compliance date is 18 months from uh, September 14th, which is when it was posted in the federal register. You've got obviously the documentation for all advisors underneath the compliance rule. We haven't even touched on that in addition to private funds, but I guess maybe just to kind of even start to think about as we close up our conversation today and obviously all the different parts of of this would love to hear just from from me from each of you you know a quick kind of closing thought or take on on the private fund rules generally and some additional questions or challenges that you're continuing to kind of wrestle with maybe Kristen why don't, why don't we start with you Oh, thanks, Patrick. No, and thanks again for having me here today. I guess I'll touch on something maybe a little, um, a little more, less controversial, more positive <laughs> coming out of the rule, and that is just that there's uh, there is now a requirement for all advisors to have a written annual review, and that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. And I think most most of our clients were doing so anyway. But some clients were not. And, and so there is flexibility in terms of how the annual re- review can be documented, but it is just something to keep in mind um, as we go forward. And then just on the private funds rules, generally, I think a lot more to come. You know, they're being litigated right now, so we'll see kind of where that where it all ends up. Um, so that's one of the bigger questions that we've gotten from our clients is what what to do. Do we start preparing? And I think the the short answer is yes. You know, it's always good to be prepared, and then we'll we'll see where we land with the litigation. Dan? Yeah, I would echo that. And I, you know, Kristen stole my point, as she, as she always does, because we think along the same lines, and that's totally cool. But you know, the litigation will will take some time to, to work itself out. And I don't know if that's you know eight months to a year. I don't know how long. But in any event, you know, I think these rules, much like the marketing rules, are going to be a big lift and much bigger actually than the marketing rule because of the operational aspects of a lot of this. And you, a year will come by, go by really quickly. And I would, you know, encourage everybody to start taking inventory, start talking to their operations folks. You know, if it's weekly meetings, you know, checking in because that you're 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 taking a, a big gamble relying on the courts. Not that I, you know, I think that I'm not going to opine on the the quality or the the likelihood of success because that's just I'm not going to go there because I don't really have any expertise. But I do have expertise that if you're going to wait and the court doesn't uh, overturn the rules, you're going to be in a very difficult position uh, come the compliance state. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would echo that too, in terms of if, if you think about like, like, well, I don't know the, you know, I can't opine either on, on the litigation, but I think about more, more holistically, the SEC requires audits and other, you know, circumstances that require quarterly statements and other circumstances. 
um, advisor-led secondaries and fairness opinions that goes to investor protection. It's uh, the other rules are disclosure-based and consent-based with them. I mean, a lot of those fall in line with existing statutes and other settings by the SEC. And so I think that, that, that that's something that I think is important. And, and I will say, you know, to the point about starting early, you know, having to, 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 to a fund that's been in existence for a while to switch from a surprise count to now a mandatory audit. I mean, beginning balances have to be audited. It is not something like they can call up in November and say, you know what, the court case didn't, didn't, didn't work out. So we need you to do an audit for 1231. It's just, it doesn't work that way. I mean, it'll be multiple years worth of audits just to get beginning balances for a fund, just to audit the current period. So th those are big lifts that I know clients are really thinking about because they understand that this is going to be pretty significant. Yeah. Saddle up, everybody. It's going to be, it's going to be an exciting 12 months. Uh, uh, Kristen, Dan, Pete, thank you. Thank you so much. It has really been an incredible conversation. Uh, very much appreciate all of your fantastic insights. And as I tell uh, you know, some of our other guests, no, no good deed goes unpunished in these parts. So I uh, would love to have all three of you back on to uh, opine on these rules as we continue to flush them out and, and get some more insight into them. So thank you all very, very much. Thank you. Patrick. This was great. Thank you. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guests, Kristen Snyder, Dan Call, and Pete Driscoll, for coming on the show today to share their fantastic insights on the SEC private funds rulemaking and how firms can best navigate the challenges within this difficult compliance area. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 